for the love of all that is holy, talk to your lawyer. Make sure that you're not winging this. I know a lot of us are working really hard to do things on a shoestring profitability and worry about the cost of paying a lawyer up front to do something that seems like, well, everybody's doing it, so why do I need to worry about it? I can guarantee you with 100% certainty that you will, in fact, pay more later if you don't make sure it's proper now. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Okay, so last time that we recorded, everything that we talked about, the opposite happened. Yeah. So we're back. We, we have we have producer Joe back on the line. Hi, Joe. Hi, guys. Yeah, that's the enthusiasm <laughs> we were. That's the enthusiasm we missed, Joe. Thanks for being back. <laughs> He's ecstatic. So last time we talked a lot about the Lions and how they were at the time that we recorded, they were undefeated. By the time the episode came out. Four days later, they were not undefeated. But since then, they are now four and one. Right? Are you, is it your goal to try to jinx them again? <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about that. If they lose this weekend, Who do no they more play? Lions talk. Oh, that's a good question. I don't even have oh. the schedule in front of me. But I just think it's interesting because we talked about the Lions. Hopefully, that they didn't lose and then they lost. Unfortunately, we also talked about restaurants and hotels using marketing tactics to promote like all the hype around the Lions in Detroit to bring people into their restaurants and hotels, similar to how they did for the Taylor Swift concert and all of the good economic things that happened from her concert. What has happened since then, Justin? Only wins. No, Taylor Swift has taken over the NFL. Oh, is that, is that the lead in <laughs> I was supposed to go with? Uh, yes, I did see a fun tweet that if NFL and Taylor ran as a, a ticket for president, they could they could lock in 85% of the vote. I like that. <laughs> Bringing hilarious. America together. So I just think that maybe we're manifesting a lot of things through the recording of this podcast. And so we should... If we be- manifest another Lions loss, <laughs> I swear we will never... By the way, they're playing the, the Bucks, Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, 425 on Sunday. What's your prediction? Or should we not say... The Bucks are terrible this year, so we should win. But you know, again, I'm not, I don't want to jinx. If we if they do not win, we will never talk about the Lions again. I just say it's exciting. By the way, for the first time, I mean, my kids are actually into it. Because I, of, I was ten, or 11, 10 or eleven when the Lions won a playoff game last. Yeah, I'm old. It's a long I'm, I'm a man in middle ago. age now. Yeah. So the the fact that they seem competent is confusing to me. That they seem like they know what they're doing on offense and defense. I don't know why we're even talking about this still. But listen, I am excited about them. We're talking about it because it's a better lead in than we're back. Oh, yeah. You don't like that one. Which we are back. All right. Let's go into Pineapple Express. Current events. First up on the list, I don't know if you heard, but Michigan launched the You Can in Michigan campaign. Are we saying it right? We are. I've done a lot of research on this. It's only you that says it. And go ahead. Go for it. I'm just saying, when you have the can... Do you have to say Michigan? Is no, it, because no have one to says that. Well, I know. I, I'm concerned that actually that would be the case. But anyways, I'm, I'm glad that you have confirmed through research that it is not you can in Michigan. Yeah, that would be a wild, wild decision making. So the Michigan Economic Development Corporation with the governor unveiled the You Can in Michigan campaign. It's a new talent attraction marketing campaign launching nationally to fill open jobs, grow Michigan's population, and drive the state's economy forward. A hot topic that we've talked a lot about on this podcast that you normally get really triggered by. So I thought that this is great point of conversation. It's the latest addition to a handful of marketing campaigns. So it's it's supposed to work in conjunction, not instead of Pure Michigan or Pure Opportunity. Now, I do have the 30-second radio spot teed up to play. We are professional. We are so professional. We're just doing audio drop-ins. Yeah. I've I've got the switchboard. Next up, video. Mastered. All right, here we go. Michigan has the industries that are shaping the future. Your future. Looking for new opportunities to apply your trade skills or learn new ones? They're right here in your backyard. 
find resources to accelerate your career or receive training in electric vehicles, semiconductors, biotech, clean energy, advanced manufacturing, and more. Want to find the perfect job for you? You can in Michigan. Take the next step in your career at themichiganlife.org. Okay, that's a 30-second radio spot. There's a lot of other marketing assets that go with this. What, what's your feedback? We have not talked a lot about this because I think we are saving some of our conversation for this podcast. So what are your thoughts? <sighs> Got a few. Well, right? first off, we have talked about Michigan is too stagnant mm-hmm. and it's getting too old. And that does not lead to a vibrant growing economy, uh, which is bad for restaurants, bad for hotels. So the idea that we are making a concerted effort to try to bring in talent, to bring in a highly educated, highly motivated individuals, creating some high-paying jobs, that will redound to the benefit of this industry, which is all to the good. I think there's genuine concern in this industry, though, right now that the trend line feels like we are, we are, we are in fact, transitioning a little bit away from Pure Michigan and towards reallocating resources. So if, it's, if we view this as a pie, a smaller piece of that pie is going to go to travel and tourism budgeting. budgeting. A smaller piece of the pie is going to go to Pure Michigan. Uh, and that's concerning. That's concerning to people in this industry. And so they don't know. We're, we're trying to secure some more answers. I think MEDC has been very clear so far that it is not their intent yes. to transition away from Pure Michigan, which would be good. That is the gold standard anywhere you go in the country. People are envious of that campaign. It makes people want to come to Michigan. All of the data suggests it has worked tremendously from where we were in the mid-2000s to where we are in travel and tourism dollars to the state right now. You know, I still think that we are a long way from our ceiling, that there's still ROI to be had through investment, but that the MADC wants to make abundantly clear. We've talked to them specifically. They made clear in a press conference earlier this week, this does not mean the end of Pure Michigan, and, and I take them at their word. But concurrently this week, this is, you know, t- we are recording on Thursday late morning, you know, news breaking today that we know that Dave Lorenz is going to retire at the end of this year. So that is for anyone on this listening to this pod that doesn't know, we've talked about Dave in the past. He's a longtime travel director, worked in and around Pure Michigan since its inception, and and really, you know, is could not be more integrated into travel and tourism in Michigan. And so that's that's a loss to the state. That's a loss to this industry coming up at the end of this year. And and what comes next? I, I don't I don't know. But that level of expertise and understanding and passion about promoting us abroad and within Michigan is is going to be retiring. And by the way, Dave earned that absolutely. I, I wish him the very best on retirement and something tells me we're not we're not done working with him and collaborating with him before he before he goes, but that's a big transition at the same time as this campaign is launching. So there's a real uneasy feeling right now, I think, within this industry. But MEDC has been a great partner to ours this year and we're gonna keep working with them and, and keep advocating for just how viable. We shouldn't have to, right? Right. Pure Michigan pretty much has sold itself over the years as a, as a brand, and the ROI is as clear as day there. So it's, it's, it's an awkward position to be in right now, but we are, we're going to keep advocating for, to make sure Pure Michigan is, is going to be well-funded. We've talked a million times on this podcast about how short-term rental legislation and creating tax parity for those Airbnbs and HomeAways or VRBO stays uh, should be paying into the system the same way that hotels do to pay for the advertising campaign that goes to Pure Michigan. I think that is a, a smart common sense way to stabilize some funding for Pure Michigan. And that changes the pie. That means we're not taking some piece of the pie away from Pure Michigan to make sure we're funding talent creation, talent retention in this state. That's a that's a good thing, right? Let's grow the pie as opposed to reapportioning it, because I don't think the two really need to be, nor should they be mutually exclusive. Yeah, I agree. I think that they need to ensure that they can coexist and both things can be true. That we're doing you can in Michigan and Pure Michigan and also, I would say that there's a there's a way. I've, have you looked at the website, the new the MichiganLife.org website? They have. Yeah, it looks like I'm a recluse. It basically says live as far north as you possibly can. That's where we suggest <laughs> you go. It's like I, Traverse City was number one. I think Northeast Lower Peninsula is number two, which is great. That's where we have a cottage. And then the Upper Peninsula, you know my love yeah. of the UP, is number three. Nowhere, nowhere where concentrated population is is, <laughs> is suggested where I should go. That tracks. I was uh, the thumb region is what I what I got. So I'll be moving soon, just so you know. Here's, nice. here's my notice. <laughs> B- bad axe, here you come. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that, that 
there's a little bit of shaky ground feelings around Pure Michigan. It is a this the Ucana Michigan is a fifty nine million dollar campaign at the moment with plans to go into twenty twenty four as well. But anyway, so I did look at the website. I I if if anyone is listening to this podcast and is seeking my recommendations, my one recommendation I think it's great is that when it comes to Pure Michigan, you can there's not a place that says clearly visit Pure Michigan. So if we're trying to attract these people in, you know, let's bring them in on a for a vacation from any of these target states in California and Georgia and Illinois and wherever and and encourage them to visit. That that kind of helps the two hands hold in my opinion and I think that maybe that was just a little bit overlooked. So that's my suggestion. I think that's genius. I think we need to get MEDC on the phone right now and have that conversation. I think it makes sense, right? This is your chance to have a first impression. You're considering moving here, maybe, maybe relocating and, and either creating a business here or uh, coming to work in this state. Maybe come visit first and, and, and try it out, see how it feels. Right, exactly. And there's a lot of viable careers in uh, the hospitality industry. So True. curate your career in, in the industry, some may say. We can help them with that. All right. Well, we're hoping to get Hillary Doe on the podcast in an upcoming episode. She is Michigan's first ever Chief Growth Officer with MEDC. She's also joining us at the Women in Hospitality Leadership Conference in about a month. She will be taking the stage, so a lot of good conversation with her to come, for sure. Love it. So speaking of manifesting things, we talked about Chicago and the tip credit on the last episode. Essentially, right after that last podcast went live, Chicago City Council voted 36 to 10 to phase out the city's tip credit. That is a move that will require restaurants to increase the wages they paid tip workers by 67% by July of 2028. What does this mean for us in Michigan being so close to Chicago? What's your what's your take overall? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the concept of the tip credit and its tenuous nature at the moment is, is an existential threat to the industry. We've talked about it in Michigan because since 2014, there's been a ballot proposal every other election cycle uh, trying to eliminate that here. We've been successful as an association leading efforts to, to keep that at bay thus far. Chicago is, it's, it's not great news, but I think that die was cast when, when Mayor Brandon Johnson was elected. It was a centerpiece of his campaign, a very, very, and I don't just mean he's a Democrat. I mean, it was a very far left of center campaign and a candidate who really is more of an activist and now is the mayor of one of the largest cities in the entire world. It's, it's, you're going to see what that looks like when those two things collide. And this is one of his top priorities. And One Fair Wage, a group he worked with during that campaign, is, is made this their number one issue to work with him on. And, and so you, it's not surprising that it got done. I think the concerning part is there's a lot of servers in, in, in Chicago that were trying to make their voice heard that you think you're helping me and this is not helping me. You are making my life worse. You are going to lower my ceiling of available revenue and income, which is important. You're going to probably diminish my flexibility working in this industry because I'm going to make less and therefore probably going to need to work more hours. And it's the flexibility that I love the most about this industry. It fits my lifestyle. You're going to bring that all into focus in a negative way, and that's going to play out in Chicago because we're starting to see it play out in D.C. We had Mike Watley with the National Restaurant Association who lives in D.C., grew up in D.C., is watching that happen before his eyes right now in Washington, D.C., where a slew of restaurants are putting on service charges to try to make up somehow the dramatic increase in labor costs, and it's ugly. The servers are revolting. They do not like it. They are quitting. The industry is challenged to figure out how to how to make this work right now. And so, you know, we're seeing it play out in practice, and it's and it's not great. And these are in major major urban areas. Chicago, not to the same degree as D.C., but both places are are where you're going to see a lot of business hosting a lot of what I like to always say is other people's money. It's it's always fun and easy to spend other people's money. And when you see that spread out across an entire state, the, 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 it, it will be catastrophic, right? We've talked about forty to 60,000 jobs lost here as the industry tries to recalibrate how to operate a bifurcation of the industry between fine dining, which will retain that experience, and you'll just pay a, a, a real premium to have that experience, and then the panerification of everything else, ordering at the counter and, and going and getting your food, even on more upscale places. So you that, that in-between... That, that that casual dining experience will will start going to the, the place of extinction. Not great. 
So I don't love this news. I don't know to the extent it's going to impact discussions that we're having here in Michigan. Again, as the recap, we've talked about it. We're waiting on the Supreme Court to make a decision on whether it's going to overturn it, a lower court ruling that would, if they choose to overturn that ruling, would eliminate the tip credit because it will bring back a very old 2018 law and throw it back uh, 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 into the fray six years later, seven years later, maybe, and and, and cause chaos uh, in Michigan's economy and most acutely for this industry. So something we're working very closely on in and around the legislature. I don't like this result. I don't think, though, that Chicago, as Chicago goes, so necessarily goes the country. That's, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it should just show as a, as a warning, a red flag for that potential expansion anywhere else. And, and Watley shared that customers don't like it either. They're just moving their dining to the suburbs where they can pay less. Michiganders know there are good lakes, and then there are great lakes. Same goes with restaurants. Good restaurants get the big things right. Great restaurants focus on the details. Spot On can help. Their tech provides up-to-the-minute sales and labor reporting to increase revenue and control costs, so you can take your business from good to great. That's why Spot On's point-of-sale and labor management tools are trusted by great Michigan restaurants, like the Vicari Restaurant Group. Spot On Tech has improved the ordering process at Andiamo's and Joe Muir and empowered their general managers with more accessible data that helps move the needle. Joe Muir increased dessert sales by 18% thanks to business insights from Spot On reporting, leading to an additional $25,000 in revenue. In the words of Dominic Vicari himself, Spot On helps me be more proactive than reactive. With Spot On, you not only get access to business tools that help you save time and make key decisions, you also get 24-7 dedicated support from real humans who care. It's more than good, it's great. To learn more, visit spoton.com. That's S-P-O-T-O-N.com slash associations slash Michigan dash R-A. Okay, let's move on to Pineapple Plaudits. We have a couple stories here. Five Michigan hotels were named in Condé Nast Traveler's top 15 hotels in the Midwest. So Michigan dominated this list. Pure Michigan dominated this list. Nice dropping. Thank you. Uh, Detroit Foundation Hotel, Shinola Hotel, The Vault Hotel, Island House, and Hotel Iroquois all made that top 15 list. You know what these hotels all have in common outside of being phenomenal establishments? What's that? All members of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. So, nice. Yes. There, there's a correlation there for sure. I'm, I might suggest that there's causation, not just correlation. By being a member of this association, might you become a top five establishment in the country? Join and find out. You heard it here first, that's, folks. Joe, that's our new campaign. What do you think? I think it's pretty good. <laughs> join and find out. <laughs> that's right. Emerly.org slash join now. I like it. All right. And the uh, next story for Pineapple Plot at St. John's Resort unveils Southeast Michigan's first new golf course in decades. Justin, have you heard about this? I have mixed feelings about this one. Let me tell you why. Break I'm it down. I'm ecstatic about this course. <laughs> and, you know, Paul Wiegert, who runs general manager there at St. John's Resort, uh, has been dangling the opportunity to play this new course for some time. And to this date, what day do we have right now? It is October 12th. It's starting to get cold, Paul Wiegert. We have not had that opportunity to play this course just yet. I am hearing only amazing things, which is why I actually have these mixed feelings, uh, that the course is uh, is in tip-top shape, that the design is unique and original, and really a, a, a triumph for Southeast Michigan that hasn't had a big new course in a long time. Yeah. So it's a major, major investment, part of an ongoing $50 million investment at St. John's Resort. And if you haven't been there lately, it's some things are still under construction, but the, the transformation is, is huge and impressive. So the golf course is slated to open next spring. Are you telling me that you are going to potentially get to play it exclusively first? Um, I mean, I'm asking <laughs> whether, whether that's possible <laughs> to be determined, but it is, uh, and all joking aside though, it's, it's a, Pretty big triumph, and we're excited. I think we are planning to host the MRLA Pack golf outing at this golf course Manifest next it. year. So let me apologize to Paul and the golf team now for for hacking up that golf course next June. And if you have not seen St. John's Resort in a while, you can on November 9th for our Starts of the Industry Awards dinner that we are hosting there. I think it's going to be too cold for golf, but um, we'll see. It's a great establishment. 
Okay, let's move into the government affairs for Fork's sake. There's a lot happening. I put a lot on this outline. So maybe, Justin, you tell me what you'd like to talk about or just update us in general on the landscape in Lansing. Potentially less than a month left of session, potentially not. Maybe break that down a little bit. Yeah, we should have dragged John McNamara in here for this one because it feels like things right now are changing by the hour. The legislature is very actively in session right now. Today's a Thursday. Usually Thursdays start to ease up a little bit. The legislature's here, but the the intensity ratchets down. Tuesday and Wednesday are usually the most bustling, intense days around here for legislative activity. Lately, Thursdays have been equally as hot and going much later into the afternoon than they normally do because I think that they're going to uh, adjourn for the year early. Not, not in mid to late December like they normally do for the year, but as early as late October, maybe November 2nd. It's unclear exactly when. And why would they do that? Well, it's something called sine die. When they, when they adjourn for the year, sine die, and they can't come back into session after that until a new calendar year, it, it starts the, the, the clock ticking on a 90 days. Any bill that passed this year that didn't get immediate effect can go into effect 90 days after sine die. And there are some things like a presidential primary in that the, the Michigan Democratic Party would like to see in February and a date that is sooner than usual for the Michigan Democratic primary to make that happen because that bill did not get immediate effect. They need to adjourn sooner to get that uh, the 90 days to allow for, for that primary to happen on that specific date. So it's really compressing a whole lot into a short period of time. And so anything's possible right now. But this week, the story has been a Detroit land use tax bill that has been struggling. It can't quite get across the finish line in the House. It's not to say by the time this publishes that they didn't get the votes, frankly. Usually when we talk about things (laughs) that's not happening, they happen and vice versa. So they're only maybe a vote or two short. So if they get that going, there's a a logjam behind that issue that I think uh, is going to push a whole lot of things to the forward. We've been following some hotel tax issues. I think we've been impactful on, on changing them, but there are, it's very much in flux right now. There's a county tax bill. There's a local tax bill. Much of this tied to Grand Rapids, which we talked to in a huge investment trying to be made there to draw tourists in from out. So that's something we're following very closely right now, but there's just not a lot to, to give you on detail right now. But, but I expect some movement in the next couple of weeks, hopefully in a way that we can get behind. I think we've had really constructive conversation with the with the bill sponsors. And uh, so if we can see some of these amendments where we need to get some support for this industry, that this industry has a say in its own taxation going forward, I think that'll be a big step uh, and, and a win, I think, for all sides. Yeah. Is it a good thing, bad thing, mediocre thing for us in our industry if they adjourn early? Well, it goes multiple ways. I think Our Grand Rapids hotels would like to see something get done. I think they need an an issue resolved fairly quickly related to some bonds. We won't go into all of this, but to finance what's necessary to bring some things into Grand Rapids, an aquarium, an amphitheater, et cetera, uh, possibly a soccer stadium. So that would be that would be not great at least for our members in that area uh, there's some other things out there that are that are dangerous that are toxic um, that we have been uh, actively opposing and so we would not be shedding a tear if those things don't don't see movement in the next couple of weeks yeah interesting yeah we normally record this podcast on Thursdays so that we know what happened Tuesday Wednesday because those are those heavier days so but we'll, we always keep you guys updated and other ways. We did host a webinar earlier this week, which the recording's available to our members. You, Johnny, our our lobbyist, John McNamara, Brett Marr, and Clarence Gales, which are contracted lobbyists we work with as well, all joined that webinar to do a full rundown of everything that's on the list, because there's a barrage of impactful bills on the docket or on its way to the docket. So I encourage everyone to check that out via the members portal of our website. Yeah, not much has changed since we record that because exactly of that Detroit land use bill. Nothing else has really moved. So you're seeing sort of some stagnation this week. Uh, So what we recorded earlier in the week is still valid. And if you have particular interest in the hotel tax issue or short-term rental, there are a lot of questions brought on by listeners to that webinar. And so there's there's a really good discussion that I I think takes place. So give give that a look. Absolutely. Okay, listeners, this is Justin Winslow back. Uh, this is actually a couple days after our interview with Helen Lizzie Mills of Fahey Schultz, Berzik, and Rhodes. Uh, we had a fantastic discussion with Lizzie on the state of surcharges and service charges happening frequently within the industry right now. 
still a very topical discussion, but concurrent to that interview, uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, put out uh, pretty expansive rules that would overhaul restaurant pricing. And it's obviously topical uh, to the conversation, to the interview we had, but but glaringly missing because it was happening uh, at the same time. Somewhat frustrating to have such a great interview with, with a, a real expert and then have something as significant as this uh, come out pretty much concurrently right after this interview. And so we wanted to put this in as an addendum, uh, as context that you're not going to see or hear in this interview, uh, but is very relevant to the industry overall. So what am I talking about? Restaurant pricing models, including the service charges and surcharges that we talked about, would see a ban on mandatory fees as proposed last week by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, So what what does that mean? As part of this sweeping new plan, the agency would, one, eliminate service or other mandatory fees from restaurant receipts, two, make several recommendations concerning tipping for servers and credit card transaction charges, and three, require all-in pricing during third-party delivery menu selections. The National Restaurant Association and the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association are going to be working together over the coming months to provide feedback to the FTC. Uh, It is certainly the opinion of of uh, of this host that they are going well beyond their standard authority here to require restaurants to uh, comply with these rules. This is well above and beyond, and it's very specifically targeted at an industry. Uh, it's it's not to say that this wasn't happening somewhat already. The FTC has been uh, tackling the concept of what they call quote junk fees uh, of late. This restaurant expansion is very new and somewhat unexpected. Uh, So something that we will be working on with the National Association over the next several months. Uh, It's something to to stay uh, apprised of, and you'll hear more from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association soon. Uh, But because it is significant, because it is so relevant to the conversation uh, we had with Lizzie Mills, uh, we wanted to make sure that this new context was brought into play but was not part of that interview. I think everything you heard in that interview is still relevant, still uh, useful to you in, in, in terms of how you think about taking on service charges or surcharges. Just understand now as an operator, there's a potential future environment, maybe second quarter of next year, uncertain at this point, that you might see a, an implementation of rule changes that have been proposed but not implemented Uh, by the FTC. So expect to hear more from the association here uh, and enjoy the interview with Helen Lizzie Mills. Today we have Helen Lizzie Mills from Fahey, Schultz, Berzik, and Rhodes joining us. So Lizzie is a member at Fahey, Schultz, Berzik, Rhodes, where she specializes in management, management side advocacy in the labor and employment law fields. Lizzie enjoys helping the firm's clients solve problems and plan for success, and she understands the challenges of being a business owner, operator, and employer in the hospitality industry. Her service to the industry spans from protecting employers from or reduce reduce the risk of liability regarding employee disciplinary matters, consulting on necessary employment policies and compliance concerns, advising on common missteps in the industry like tip issues, unemployment benefits, or discrimination claims handling, managing a state or federal investigation for any variety of employment issues from wage and hour compliance to civil rights claims and beyond. Lizzie is a trusted and regular contributor to MRLA educational events and resource materials, plug for the MRLA Legal Center. And when she's not at work, Lizzie enjoys spending time with her husband and busy athletic children reading or listening to books on all topics ranging from mysteries to autobiographies of important figures in world history to true crime to professional development theories, listening to an HR or true crime podcast, and enjoying the lake near their home. Lizzie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. We're so excited you're here. You are our go-to all the time. For us at the association, frankly, if we're if we're not 100% clear or, or think we're on solid ground and what we're advocating. We, we go to you for your expertise, but also for our members, our members who have attended, anyone who's attended any of our in-person educational events over the last several years knows that you are our go-to for all things 
tip credit, all things tip pooling, making sure that you are operating your business because it's a cha- it's challenging sometimes because we have a, a unique labor force in this industry. Uh, making sure you are doing it the right way and you do it uh, with enthusiasm and excitement. It can be a boring topic, but you always bring <laughs> uh, you always bring excitement. So it was natural and it was obvious for us to go to you to bring your expertise to our listeners as we're trying to grapple with the massive increase in surcharges and service charges within the industry right now, I think fueled by uh, some rapid inflation coming out of the pandemic, right? Is it just a way to stay uh, above water, to stay afloat in a challenging time for this industry? But there's a lot of do's and don'ts that I'm not sure all of our operators, especially our smallest operators, are aware of. And so I'm hoping you're going to help navigate for us, frankly, and uh, and for our listeners, uh, the, the do's and don'ts on this uh, this new trend in the industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be of service. Um, this is something that I think is probably the next new in vogue issue for litigation. I mean, we've certainly seen the industry be in the crosshairs for what seems like forever on issues relating to tips and tip pooling. And it it is clear to me that service charges in particular are sort of the new talk of the moment and also seem to be from our, our industry client perspective, service charge seems to be like, well, that's just how I'll fix something that I'm approaching because they're seeing somebody else do it maybe with success in a different jurisdiction. And the trick there is that uh, what works across the road may not work for you and how we do it really, really matters. So I'll be happy to have this conversation today. Love it. Emily, you want to, we've got, we've got a litany of questions (laughs) and a limited amount of time, Lizzie. So let's just get right to it. This is probably the most questions I've ever written for a podcast (laughs) interview. But just to start off, can you provide a brief overview of what a service charge or surcharge is in context of restaurants? And how do those differ than tips from from both the, the customer standpoint? I love that we are starting with what are the basic terms? Because this is something that really matters as we start walking out the different rules. So hopefully this is a refresher for a lot of your listeners. And if it's not, welcome to the fray so that we can get more invested <laughs> into it. When it comes to service charges, what we're talking about is a charge that the owner or in, in sometimes the employer itself is deciding to impose that is the employer or owner's decision. So I'm the only one that gets to decide what it is and where it's going to be placed and how it's going to be used. The customer or the guest that is expected to pay that sum does not have discretion to sort of look at a bill and go, "Eh, I'm not interested in paying that piece. That is distinct, of course, from a tip, which is something that the consumer or the restaurant guest or our customer at a fast food dining has the option of saying, I am or am not going to tip. And not only whether to tip, but also how much to tip. So it's a distinction between decision-making and authority to, to put that money on the proverbial table. I think the other thing that's really important to remember is that the tax consequences are different, and I will not bore every one of your listeners with that. But at a basic level, those service charges are part of your gross taxable income to the business. And we all know that there are different taxing rules for tips. And as I hope we'll spend a lot of time talking about today, and I'll make sure we talk fast so we get through as much as possible. But when it comes to service charges, the the obligation to disclose information and make it very clearly apparent to the customer or guest who is about to receive your services or your excellent facility use, that they are aware of what they're buying into. Those rules are very complicated sometimes in some jurisdictions. And then, of course, on the tip side, the complications are entirely different. They are who gets to participate in a tip pool, who can even be paid at a tipped rate, and what do we do with that from a payroll perspective? So they're both their own buckets of many, many questions and lots and lots of rules. But I think that the tip one is one where we spend lots of time. Certainly, we've drafted lots of articles and done lots of talk about those topics. Service charges is one where I think there's just some confusion about where we're going and what the heck is that thing. And if maybe I can anticipate based on the question, when we use the word surcharge, you know, it's not that that's a term of art per se in the industry. It's that a lot of times when we talk about surcharge, we're often talking about that credit card processing fee, which is in fact different. The credit card processing fee is something that um, I think we, we sometimes use the term swipe charge. The charge that the business incurs by relying on the, um, the credit card or the bank to process those fees. And a lot of occasions we're starting to see those as well on a bill itself. And 
what's interesting about that is there are special rules. The credit card processing fee is like, to me, kind of right in the smack in the middle of what is a service fee and do I have to care about tips? Because there are rules about how you can interweave those two. I won't bore your listeners with that today, but understand that there's a way for, for us to work together on credit card processing fees and tips that is unique. And something that if you haven't had a conversation with your uh, hospitality industry specialist attorney, you should be because you want to make sure you're taking advantage of what's available to you, but also not crossing any lines. And Lizzie, they can call you directly. Is that correct? Oh, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) We'd be happy to pick up the phone. Perfect. Our MRLA members do get 15 minutes free every month uh, with with Lizzie. So part of the value of membership. Well, let's talk about this. We get this, I get this question offhand from restaurant uh, members when I see them in person. We get calls into our membership team here with inquiries. They want to know if they do it, where, how do they have to post? Is there a threshold they can't go above? Is it 3%? Can I go to 3.5? What if I feel like just throwing 7% on there because that would be more? 7% is more than 3%. Why don't I just put a 7% surcharge on there and call it a credit card surcharge? Walk me through some of why that maybe isn't a great idea. Right. I think at its core, there are two two key reasons, some of which will overlap with um, what we talk about in general with service fees today. But the, the point is that you're allowed to pass along the actual cost that you are incurring. So that, that processing fee that you're getting charged can safely be passed along to your customers. And then, as I mentioned, utilized specifically with relate to how we manage our tip processing and what can be taken out of tips based on the amount that you're having to pay to the credit card company for the use of their service. So I would not encourage, and in fact, would strongly discourage um, someone just saying, well, I'm going to pick a random number. It really needs to be tied to your rate. If it goes above and beyond that, you're going to create too many headaches for yourself when you're trying to decide how much of, of a tip does someone actually get when the customer paid with a credit card and left a tip on the bill. So don't make too much of a payroll headache for yourself and a documentation headache for yourself by picking a random number. It really needs to be something that's tied to the fee you are actually incurring. Can you talk about the difference in taxable liability between a service charge and a surcharge? If I, It's one thing if I put 18 or 20% on as a service charge, and I'm trying to usually do that in lieu of people leaving a tip, or maybe they'll give a little bit on top, but that's the that's the angle and approach. That you described, is that's taxable revenue to, to the uh, operator. But what if I'm putting that 3% surcharge on for credit card surcharge fees? Is that the same in terms of taxable liability on that revenue? It will be treated a little differently. So your gross receipts, when you're talking about service charges, it's all going to include everything that you received. But when we're almost acting as a pass-through, right, we're, we're allowing essentially the customer or the guest to pay for our our surcharge on the credit card fees, we get to treat that differently. And you should certainly be working with your accountants to talk through that because, again, um, it's part of why it's so critical that you're tying what you're charging to the actual fee you are incurring so that you can track that and properly deduct it when you're doing your taxes. What kind of liability or, if there's not liability, best practices in general do operators need to be aware of in notifying the the guests? I know when I go get my hair done, per se, per se you know, it says, if you're using your credit card, I will charge you X. So, Lizzie, um, we talk about Emily's hair a lot on this <laughs> podcast. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's a frequent topic of discussion. Well, at least one of us has some. <laughs> oh, shots fired. Boy, I anyway. only, I, you know, we weren't being recorded. I make all kinds of jokes right now. I'm squarely in the middle of the video. <laughs> Um, So we'll get back to the actual question. (laughs) So when it comes to best practices for owners and managers, when you're talking about surcharges or service fees, the one um, that I always start with is please, for the love of all that is holy, talk to your lawyer. Make sure that you're not winging this. I know a lot of us are working really hard to do things on a shoestring profitability and worry about the cost of paying a lawyer up front to do something that seems like, well, everybody's doing it, so why do I need to worry about it? I can guarantee you with 100% certainty that you will in fact pay more later if you don't make sure it's proper now. So ensure that you get that cleared with your lawyer. It's worth a couple hundred bucks or whatever they're going to charge you to take a look at it because it can be lots and lots of zeros on top of that to defend against issues involving this. Um, So lawyers often will answer things with like, it depends. I don't know for sure. I can't make a guarantee. I can make a guarantee that if you don't do this properly with your lawyer in advance, it will cost you a lot more money to do it after the fact. 
the other reason, of course, I would mention that is it's a hot topic area. So the rules are changing under our feet and they change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So we want to be really careful. But from a practical perspective, here's what I would say. We should not be afraid of disclosing a fee that we're putting on someone's bill. Bottom line, they're going to pay it. They're going to see it at some point. We should be not afraid of disclosure. No one is ever going to sue you over over disclosing that you had a fee. And so it's not, for instance, that there's a particular font size or a particular word that we need to use. But the idea is don't hide it. If you hide it, as we may talk about in greater detail or I, we can discuss now, you've got concerns about consumer protection statutes that are going to come into play where consumers have the right to know what they're going to be asked to pay in exchange for the goods or services being provided to them. And it's, there are clear rules about that across the country and certainly here also in the state of Michigan. We have also seen an uptick in what, what would be maybe termed as deceptive trade practice allegations against certain restaurateurs in the industry where they aren't exactly telling you that there's a fee coming or the fee is labeled differently. So to avoid some of those things, or again, reduce your opportunity for liability, shall we say, your disclosure should be clear, conspicuous, and disclosed in advance of the purchase. That's it. It doesn't need to be a complicated formula. Don't write on here, well, the heretofore mentioned restaurateur might possibly be charging you an additional sum at the conclusion of your dining experience that will certainly let you know about at some point in the future, right? We have to be clear. Nobody wants to read that. Nobody would read that. And you don't have space on your menus for that anyway, right? You don't have them up on the menu board. You're not going to have it in the bar menu. We need to be really careful with how we do that. Second, when you talk about where you put these disclosures, Think about where might a customer be looking when they're making a decision about whether to receive your services or your goods. So is it on the menu board? Is it on your website? Is it on every menu that you have? So for instance, if you have a short menu up at the bar, but you have something that's more complete back in the dining area, your fees need to be disclosed in all places. And if you think about what I mentioned regarding consumer protection, that all makes sense. The consumer is entitled to know before they decide to say, yes, I want to take this from you in exchange for some form of compensation back. They need to know what they're expected to pay for. So, okay, easy enough, Lizzie. Lizzie says disclose. It's fine. Tell everybody everything. No big deal. Well, what the heck are you supposed to tell them, right? We know it's supposed to be clear and conspicuous and disclosed in advance. What am I telling them? Here's where I think the rubber really meets the road on issues relating to service fees. From my perspective, if someone has placed a vague or misleading type of label on what the fee is, that is where all of the problems arise. So, so let me give you some examples of cases that are definitely out there right now and some things we might, might maybe have seen <laughs> in representing folks in this industry. So <clears throat> think about whether the label that you have placed on this fee in your disclosure first of all, fairly and accurately reflects how much will be charged. So are you being specific in the sum? And number two, are you suggesting in any way that what you are charging them for is going to actually be passed along to employees? Because that is one of the critical elements that gets us into trouble and that we're seeing, to get, um, I would say, get some traction across the country. There's a, there's currently out in California, there's some really interesting litigation where, of course, the rules are, are much more stringent in California than they are here in Michigan in, in regard to some of this. But there's a case out there where some, some employees are trying to make the case of a mandatory service charge indicated on a menu as being uh, placed to facilitate a higher living wage for our employees was improperly kept by the business because they are claiming that should have been considered a tip and that it should have been something that was payable to the tipped employees. Well, I don't think that's what the business owner meant. They were probably talking more about their overall bottom line, that if you help us out, we can help them out, but that's an issue. So look at your laboring, labeling. We've also seen some where they call it like a back of house fee or a happy kitchen fee or things like that. If that's the label you're using, understand that the, the rules of the game are going to switch on you very carefully because while you think this is a service charge, which I described at the beginning of our talk today as something I get to hold on to, I get to decide what to do with it. But in fact, it's probably something that ought to be considered a tip. Well, now we have both sets of rules collapsing in on us like we're in a sandpit, and I don't think that's a fun place to be. So be really careful in how we choose to label these things. One additional point that I think might be useful is that you could even say on your service fee notice, this is not a tip. 
you have to make a business decision about whether you want to include that. Some folks will find that their guests are understanding of that and, and appreciate that notice because maybe they still do want to, in fact, add tip to their to their bills on top of the service fee, but others are not. And you have to know you have to know your market and what your folks and consumers are actually looking for. And then just in case we have some sort of multi-unit locations where we're crossing state lines um, in the area, I think it would be really also helpful to know that, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, what you're doing here is not necessarily appropriate in a neighboring state or sometimes even in a neighboring city or community. So please be sure to check with your jurisdiction-specific council because um, there are states that are imposing different rules. For instance, I think Washington, D.C., they have just recently issued some consumer protection alerts, I think in March of this year, saying, hey, Consumer Protection Act does apply to this stuff, and if you're not careful, we're going to be coming after you. Washington, D.C. isn't all that big, and if you're not paying attention and you don't aren't keyed into these types of changes, it can be really scary. Yeah, Lizzie, so we, talk, we talked about this in the beginning of uh, today's podcast about the the, the changing nature of tipping in general right now within this industry, Washington, D.C., having voted late last year to eliminate the tip credit. And what you're seeing is a massive onslaught. It's probably part of why we're having this discussion, a massive onslaught of restaurants initiating a service charge, which they believe to be, as you describe it, mandatory and their decision on how to, to distribute as long as everyone is making it a bare minimum, the full minimum wage. And right. it is causing chaos. It's It's been bad for servers, but it's also been challenging for operators because you're seeing a pushback now to to whether service charges really are essentially a tip in, in a different format and, and what that means. And, you know, the IRS weighed pretty distinctly between these two in the, in the mid-teens of the last decade, separating, to, you know, really definitionally tip versus uh, service charge, but you feel the ground beneath our feet in this industry changing right now. And you brought this up. This this is an industry that is often under litigation because it has such a unique labor force and structure. It is not a standard punch in nine, punch out five. And, and that leads to challenges, 80-20 uh, rule violations, uh, whether it's joint employer concerns and challenges, overtime regulations. And and now the all all the things related to to tipping right now are challenging. I think tip pooling was a big thing about a decade ago. And were you doing it the right way? Because if you aren't, we're coming after you. And if you're a mid-sized franchisee, you are right in the wheelhouse of too big big enough to be worthwhile to go after, and small enough not to have a massive legal counsel prepared to handle these these uh, onslaughts and attacks. So if nothing else, I think you're providing a really good warning to be thorough and really clear and concise uh, if you're making these changes at your restaurant. It's it's really important. And I would say um, in the last 18 months in particular, the number of times we've picked up a call with uh, a restaurateur who says, hey, um, some guy from Wage and Hour came in and talked to some of our employees and looked at some of our records and then slid something across the table to me that said I owed you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars because of a way I've been managing tips all along or a way I've been doing X, Y, or Z all along, I, it's been a lot. And the, the number of dollars that have been at issue is significant and in some cases, business breaking. So when we talk about being in the crosshairs of enforcement agencies, I don't take it lightly on behalf of our clients in this industry. I know that the association doesn't either because to some extent we have to act as um, life preservers to make sure that folks are aware of that iceberg up around the corner and it's real. And if this is the next proving ground, so to speak, for some sort of enforcement agency, this industry, unfortunately, is is an easy pick, right? It's the little it's the little kid on the playground who's not very athletic, and and that's how they view us. Even though we are sophisticated business operators, our employees are not dumb; they know what they're doing, and our customers know what they're doing. So we can't seem to get out of the crosshairs. We do what we can while we're in them. And the era of sympathy for, for the industry coming out of, during and then coming out of the pandemic, that era has been the past. So <laughs> take note, all operators who think that you may be still the, the center of, of, of all, all, all sympathy out there on this issue. We're in a dangerous new era. What should operators keep in mind in terms of communicating to their staff and their employees when they're implementing a service charge? Good question. Um, so that, so, so or surcharge. Right, more surcharge, surcharge yeah. more often than service charge, at least so far in Michigan. But but e either one. Yeah, I love this question because 
the idea of involving our employees, our front, our front line, the face of, of our business, really, in understanding what's showing up on a bill or how folks are going to be charged, I think is really critical. Even when it comes to the decision to have a service charge in the first place, making sure that your staff are trained and understand how to speak about it is really critical. That helps with two things. One, it helps with your guests understanding what's coming. And number two, it ensures that the employees have an opportunity to explore questions with you so that they don't walk down a path like I described over in California where the employees are making an argument about what the service charge is. It gives the employees an opportunity to understand it. So when you're talking about, for instance, working with your wait staff or your, your cash stand operators or however we're going to be functioning with this, you're talking about, hey, this is the date that this is going to start. This is where they can find information about it. It's on our menu. It's on our on our board. It's on the website. Um, it's in the app at such and such location. Here's what it's going to look like on their receipt and what we need from them. Explaining to them whether and to what extent you are keeping or retaining a tip line or keeping or removing a tip line is really important. We certainly have some some clients in this industry that are choosing to go a service charge route, as you mentioned, Justin, and eliminating the tip concepts. And folks need to understand what that means. They need to know what that means to them from a paycheck perspective and expectation perspective. Don't hide the ball from your staff any more than you should be hiding the ball from your your customers. Right. And they're your um, frontline communicators, and- right? They're they're the ones who are going to be if they don't understand and a guest is frustrated or confused, that's gonna that's gonna redound negatively to you and your establishment. You might not get a repeat visit from that guest. Absolutely. And I think it creates disgruntled staff where right. if again I mentioned, you know, how we're labeling the thing matters. If it's a happy kitchen fee. Your kitchen is not seeing an increase in wages as a result. They've got questions. Maybe not so and happy. They're, yeah, they're not at all happy. And as you correctly note, I think the other piece of this is, you know, if you read some of the literature out there, there is an argument that guests feel like they're being service charged or surcharged to death, right? That this is all happening. And we could sit here all day and pontificate about why those things are happening. But at the end of the day, if folks don't understand or didn't know about or don't appreciate a service fee or surcharge appearing on their bill, it's not just that they might throw the bill down and refuse to pay or that they might make a complaint to the Better Business Bureau or a consumer protection agency. It's also the Internet, (laughs) the Internet Google review, the social media, all of those things that now aren't just that they're not coming back, but they might now choose to make your facility an example. And I think that that is something that we need to avoid. And so looping our employees in to help us communicate effectively is a really important key strategy moving forward. Yeah, I think we've talked on this podcast quite a few times about tip exhaustion and that going above and beyond what what we talk about in terms of tips for our industry. Um, And I wonder how service fee or surcharge exhaustion will, just from the consumer standpoint, start to infiltrate in our world or society. Is there currently any specific statewide regulations in Michigan on disclosures and caps, or is there a possibility of this having like that patchwork effect that we talk about with other issues um, where Kent County can establish one set of regulations, Detroit's doing another? I'm, I'm just putting together the pieces in terms of like we're talking about the industry standards boards in Detroit, and maybe that's not well, a think- question for you. I know I didn't, I didn't pass that one along, but... <laughs> Well, um, here's what I think. I think your crystal ball is spot on. I think if the void is not filled by a state or a federal clear direction on this, that we will see local communities step up to do that. And so to give an example of something unrelated to what goes on a bill and how it's paid out, one of the movements that we saw a number of years ago was something called ban the box relating to whether you should be asking on employment applications, whether someone has been convicted of a felony. And there are laws that allow you to do that within a certain, again, always a certain pot of rules, right? And there essentially was no federal mandate on the issue. There's general commentary about it and that's it. But what we saw was, well, the state decided, here's what we're gonna do for our employees on that. And then you saw communities from the smallest city to large counties saying, actually, we're gonna have our own rule on what you can ask on an application and how far you can go. So I bring that up because I think that's exactly what we will see here. We don't know what a particular community's interest is in this issue until people start showing up at their meetings. And then 
typically the people that are showing up are the ones that might have service fee fatigue or be frustrated with their concept of what a restaurateur is doing with the service fee funds as opposed to what they perceive is uh, maybe an equitable tipping concept. And those folks show up at the meetings, which is their right. We want to encourage citizenry to be involved, of course. But what often doesn't happen is that representatives of the industry are also invited to that meeting to be part of the conversation. So if you don't have yourself plugged in right now to local politics, it's not a bad time to start paying closer attention. Yeah, well said. I think we've covered a a ton of ground here, and I've learned a lot just on the basics and even more detail. Uh, Any more questions, Justin, before we get into the lightning round? I'm intrigued to hear Lizzie's responses to these lightning round questions. But anything we missed that you want to make sure operators get? I think we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, as you always do, and I appreciate that. But anything we missed, you want to make sure we hit before the the fun stuff comes out. I would just say, although here in Michigan, what the attorney general is doing in Washington, D.C. on this issue is not binding to us. I think that short little presser, it's like a page long. It's not complicated to read. It really, I think, cohesively says, pay attention to this. You know, don't bury it in a fine print. Understand what your what the point of this type of protective statutes are. And think about that when you're making your business decisions. So Google it. It's really easy. Washington, D.C., Attorney General, Consumer Protection Service Charge, whatever phrases you want to throw in there. That's a great resource. So don't be afraid to look those resources up. And then again, call your lawyer because I don't want you freewheeling this in an area where it could cost you a lot of money. Well, Fahey Schultz, Berzig and Rhodes, the firm of which you are a partner, has been a great asset across a variety of ways to this association. You are our resident expert. How can our members, our listeners reach you, Lizzie? Certainly. I mean, we're happy to be of service. We happily answer the call when they they come in through the MRLA Legal Center. So just a a reminder about that, 15 minutes free to those members. Um, We have some folks that we get to talk to every month who use their 15 minutes and love it. um, (laughs) I'm going to put a cap on this one per year. And um, and and then, you know, I would just remind that if, if you're looking to establish a relationship with someone who knows the content of this industry, please just check out our website and reach out to us. We'd be happy to do that. Our, my lovely face and mug and bio will be on there. We'll be happy to uh, direct you to me. Give us a call. Shoot us an email. Um, we, we are happy to be of service. It's something that we take very seriously and are happy to be advocates in. We'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the lightning round, shall we? Okay. <laughs> okay, what is the last song that you listened to? So you're going to get to know my my secret secret thing that I do this time of year. I'm already listening to Christmas music. Oh, um, wow. So I was, I was I thought for sure we were going to get um, some sort of country song coming in hot, but... No, not me. This one's actually going to surprise you in another level. It's a cover of a Mark Anthony song called Me Voy a Regalar, which is a Christmas song in Spanish. So uh, that's wow. what I'm listening to. So early. Wow. <laughs> I love the passion. <laughs> I love the passion for the season. That is good. That so, is good. Probably the most creative answer we've received on that question. Definitely out of left field. Did not see that coming. <laughs> what is the last show that you streamed? Okay. So a lot. Um, But I think last night I was having trouble sleeping. I might have caught an episode of Love is Blind because it's a very, very terrible show to watch, but I enjoy watching it. (laughs) Otherwise, it's football season. That's all I'm watching. Oh, you want to weigh in on the Lions here? You think uh, you think good things? I think great things. I think the only time they lost this year was when I went to a game, and so I just won't go. <laughs> oh, that you just let us off of the hook. We thought we re- brought them up as undefeated, and then they lost. Really, Lizzie, it's because you went to the game. I, I, my conscience is clear. I'm so glad. That you <laughs> <off> that. <laughs> now, if they lose to the Bucks on Sunday, then now I think we're now both culpable again. Okay, we'll take responsibility equally as a lifelong Lions fan. I I take it as it comes. I still bleed Honolulu blue, and I will watch them until my eyes bleed. Love it. (laughs) All right, what is your favorite tourism destination in Michigan? That's, I think, a really hard question. I'm going to go back to it's Mackinac Island for me and then north of the bridge. But I worked on Mackinac Island as a Girl Scout for six years over the summer, so I love that place. It's like a a core memory for me so whenever I go back I feel like a much younger version of me (laughs) and it's just gorgeous up there you can't you can't change that in any way yeah I can't deny that you have a a favorite place on Mackinac Island like the place that you immediately you see it and it brings you to your childhood 100% um that's actually Fort Holmes so that's right in the smack in the middle it's where the old fort was the original version 
Um, it's at the top. When I used to go up there, they didn't have walls. Like they sort of have recreated the fort up there in wood. Um, it didn't used to be. It was just a pile of dirt when I was doing it. But <laughs> now I can go up there and tell my kids when I was a kid. <laughs> I like that. That was good. Uh, what is your go-to cocktail of choice? Uh, so I don't. I don't know that I have a favorite. I'm more of a wine drinker than a cocktail drinker. But I would say because I'm always cutting and running, I'm a low low dollar cocktail choice. I'm like a diet in Malibu kind of girl because I am just running and going and I need the caffeine. <laughs> That's fair. Well, then I'll, I'll, the follow-up is red or white? Usually white. Usually. This year it's been a little more red, but usually white. <laughs> nice. I have one last one to throw in here. Ooh, Unexpected. Not written down. Who is going to win the high school football game tonight that you're attending with our coworker Amanda Smith? Langsburg versus Fowler, right? Ooh, wow. Wow. So what is the total population of these two towns? Not much. Um, <laughs> this is tough because um, I'm for sure Fowler kicked the snot out of Langsburg last year. Um, I do fully expect Fowler to win again tonight and tomorrow, but I'm going to, I'm as a proud wife of the JV football coach, I'm going to say, of course, it's Langsburg. I like that. Go team. What is Langsburg, by the way? They are the what? The Wolfpack. I don't know. The Wolfpack. Wolf All yeah. right. So Okemos changed theirs to the Wolves. I mean, you got, that has to be just, you, you must have been looking down on Okemos going, come on. Just just straight up copying. <laughs> I, right. <laughs> All right. Well, Lizzie, thank you for being such an amazing professional resource for us. Thank you for sharing your time with us and for reminding all of us uh, that the MRLA Legal Center is here and available and full of top shelf experts who can help keep you out of trouble, keep you out of jail, keep your business profitable, but making sure that it stays open first and foremost. Thank you for the honor of chatting with you good people as always. Happy to do it. Oh, oh, oh.